Bibles this evening to Psalms 85. Psalms 85. The other day in one of the messages, I, I can't remember what the remark was, but I, I spoke about the subject of revival and uh, how seldom we, we even hear that word anymore. And uh, ever since that time, I haven't, haven't been able to just shake the thought. And uh, so tonight, we're going to talk about it uh, in a little bit of detail from one of my favorite verses here as it relates to the subject of revival. For 20 years uh, before Bev and I moved here, 30, what, 32 years ago, uh, for 20 years, I, in addition to pastoring the church, uh, was preaching revivals, uh, Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ohio mainly. Those were the main places. Had some meetings in other states, but uh, was on the road nearly all of the time, and uh, no one other than my family has any idea of what a burden that put on Bev, you know. Uh, you know, pe people think about me doing all of the traveling and coming back and everything, but naturally while I'm gone, she's holding down the fort and taking care of all of the children and uh, a lot of times things there at the church that needed to be taken care of and... Uh, I could never thank her enough, but pastoring the church, preaching revival meetings, and in addition to the revival meetings, we had a lot of fellowship meetings back then, mission conferences and things of that nature, and so shortly before we moved here, I just uh, I knew I was wore out, but uh, I decided one day, because I, had, I kept a record of uh, what I preached, where I preached, when I preached, and so... I just looked over back over the three years uh, before we came here and uh, counted up all of the messages. And during that three-year period, I averaged preaching three times a day. That's three times a day, seven days a week, every day of the month, three solid years, three sermons every day. That's 3,200 sermons in that three-year period, uh, plus, you know, the traveling that was involved with it and so forth. And I'm not saying that to complain. I, I'm just totally convinced I was then, I am now, that that's what God wanted me to do then. Shortly before uh, coming here, I made an announcement. We had a... Uh, a Bible conference every year there. We'd generally have 110, 120 preachers that would come in every year and spend uh, about three full days uh, just preaching all day, every day, and into the night. And so uh, during that assembly, when all of the preachers were there, I made the announcement that I was not going to take any more revival meetings and uh, unless it was just something close to home and uh, just kind of a, as a favor to 
to a preacher friend or, or whatever. And so uh, that, I think, was a wise decision. I think that's exactly what God wanted me to do for that stage of my life. But I'm bringing all of that up, not, you know, not in any way, certainly to complain about it, because I would never do that. There's nothing to complain about. Uh, but to mention the fact that for a lot of years, revival was on my mind. You know, back then, most of the revival meetings, uh, you'd have a morning service and an evening service, and so you knew and most of them, you was going to have at least two services there. And uh, then I had a radio broadcast I had had to make. And if I was going to be gone, I had to record that and have it ready while I was out of town. Uh, but the subject of revival was on my mind all of the time. And some, some way or another, over the passing of years, uh, we... We just don't even talk about revival anymore. We used to have revival meetings. Every church, every Baptist church, you know, have two or three revival meetings a year. And, you know, it got so that uh, in in most churches you'd have a revival meeting and you'd have about the size of a Wednesday night crowd show up because other than those faithful few those that really already were on fire for the Lord, that nobody else would show up. And so pastors basically just stopped having what we call revival meetings. I'm not against revival meetings. Uh, what we need, though, is not a revival meeting. We need revival. And the point is, if we think, if we think that we can hire a preacher for a week and fly him across the country and put him up in a motel and have him preach two times a day while he's here uh, and have a revival, we're kidding ourselves. If we want revival, we can have revival anytime we meet God's requirements. And so it's never anyone's fault other than our own whenever we don't have revival. But tonight I want you to look at verse 6, and then we'll read some of the other verses as we go along. The psalmist says, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? We don't know for certain the name of the, of the person that wrote this psalm, or even exactly when it was written. We know, however, that the Holy Spirit is the author, and so we know it's the Word of God. Uh, nor do we really need the information as to all of the details of who wrote it and when they wrote it and where they were at at that particular time. What we know is that this is obviously, if you read it all, is the prayer of a patriot. It's somebody that loved their nation. It is the song of a saint, somebody that was indeed a child of God. It was the cry of a captive, somebody that feels boxed in, locked up, and someone that just uh, feels trapped, as it were. But it's also, I think, the prediction of a prophet, and it's uh, helpful to us today because it deals with this subject of revival. And so I want us to think tonight for a few moments about revival. First of all, Go back to verse 1, and I want to read the first five verses because 
They speak about the prelude to revival. The prelude to revival. Notice what he says. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people and has covered all of their sins. Selah. That means stop. Think about it. Thou hast taken away all of thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Will thou be angry with us forever? Will thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Now, as we look at the prelude to revival, there are three things about it that I want you to notice. First of all, there is a sense of remembrance here in the first three verses. A sense of remembrance. The psalmist is looking back now at the things that God has done. And no doubt about it, if you've been saved very long, especially those that have been saved, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, something like that, and some of you have been saved much longer than that, and uh, you can look back and you can remember a time when your heart just simply overflowed with gratitude for the blessings of God. It was a time that you were so excited about serving the Lord that that, that that was just all that mattered. You couldn't wait to get to church. You couldn't wait to do something for God. Prayer came easy. Right? That's not always so easy now, is it? Sometimes, you know, we just have to kind of crowd it in there because we know it belongs we're supposed to pray, and so we got to take time for prayer. But boy, back in those days, prayer came so easy. There were so many things on your heart, so many things you wanted to see God to do. And then you, you just couldn't hardly wait till the next church service. That's why I've often said that, you know, after, after I got saved, Bev and I and the, the children we had at that time, Boy, we were the first ones at church every Sunday. We'd sometimes sit in the dark auditorium waiting for everybody to get there. and just couldn't wait for church to start. And the question is, do, do you still feel the same way? Do you feel that way today? The way that back, you know, whenever you were first saved and the excitement and the thrill of it, do you still feel the same way? You see, there's a sense of remembrance. And before he deals with the issue of revival, he's looking back at the great things that God had done. But then notice verse 4, there is a sense of realization in verse number 4. Notice what he says, and it's crucial that we understand this. He says, turn us, O God, of our salvation. Now he's talking about the present, right? He's just looked back and uh, considered the past. But now he says, Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. This is a sense of realization that something's not right, that we're not clicking on all cylinders, that something is amiss. And as we think about that, he speaks of the sinfulness of God's people. and He's acknowledging the need for repentance. That's why he says, turn us, O God. 
That's what repentance is. It is a turning around, a turning about, a turning about face. And so he says, turn us, O God. For him to need to say that means that he knows that they're obviously going in the wrong direction at that point. And so he knows that things are not as they should be. And he's realizing the sinfulness of God's people. And then notice that he speaks about the seriousness of the situation in the same verse. Calls thine anger toward us to cease. Now, I don't know the details. He doesn't tell us. But evidently, God had already in some way manifested his displeasure with them. He had made it known that I'm not pleased with the way that things are going. And the writer has enough sense to know that God's anger is a cause for great concern. We talk a lot about the greatness of God's love, and we need to do that. We need to think about that a lot. We, we talk about God's grace, and we need to do that because it's by the grace of God we're saved and by the grace of God that He provides everything that we need while we're here on this earth. We need to think about that, but we don't think nearly enough about God's anger. And by the way, even though we've been saved, God can still be angry with us. You know, parents, they, they know what that's all about, right? I mean, you love your children, but there are times that you're angry with them. I mean, they, uh, they have failed in some way. They are hurting themselves in some way. And it angers you because you know that they know uh, that they should have done better, that they should have done different. And if you don't believe God is angry, just read the record. Read what he wrote to those churches in Asia there in the book of Revelation as he rebuked them. Um, he threatened to come and to remove the candlestick. That is, he threatened to remove his presence from the congregation. That's a possibility for any church. For God to just simply say, look, you stay here if you want to, but I'm moving out. I'm taking my witness out of this church. And when that happens, we have nothing more than a glorified social club. That's all it is. It doesn't amount to anything. It's not worth anything. I mean, the, look, the attendance might be up. The offering might be up. We might be happy, but... Boy, if the Spirit of God isn't at work in our midst, why, we've missed the boat altogether. So there is this sense of recognition. He, he's already remembered the way that it used to be, the way that it ought to be, but now he's recognizing the fact that sin has caused a, a change in the situation and God is angry about it. And he's concerned about that, that when God gets angry, we've got problems. Oh, about the worst thing my mama could say, you know, whenever I was growing up and, and many times that she spanked me and, uh, and I could always endure her spankings, but she, when she said, wait till your daddy gets home, I knew that it was going to be a whole different story when he got home and took off that leather belt and, uh, uh, that it wasn't going to be a happy time. And look, when we think about displeasing God, folks, we, we put ourselves in a horrible position to think about the possibility of God being angered by us. God doesn't allow His people to sin successfully. 
Every son that he receives, what? He chastens. That's what the Bible says. I mean, we can expect that. We don't get by with anything. And so many times we just don't acknowledge what's going on in our life. All of a sudden, everything's going wrong, and we think, oh, well, that's just life. It's tough, you know. Man that's born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble, so I can just expect that. And we don't even give God any consideration that just maybe... What's going on is a result of the fact that for whatever reason we've allowed ourselves to get out of the path of righteousness and we put God on the back burner and all of a sudden our only concern is about self and God has to awaken us. Notice also here in verse 4, there is a sense of recognition. Notice the two words here, oh. That's dripping with emotion. Oh, God. Oh, God. You see, he was very much aware of the fact that only God could bring a revival. Someone wrote many years ago, and I jotted it down, said revival is not an earthly concoction. It is a heavenly creation. And that's true because all of our efforts to change are in vain without God. Our efforts to have revival are in vain without God. He's the one that gives us revival. Regardless of what we do, the size of the crowd or who is preaching, regardless of what happens, there's not going to be revival unless God grants revival. And remember, for us to be revived, we have to meet God's conditions, but it's God that ignites the spark. It's God, you know, that initiates the, the, the flame, as it were, and uh, brings revival to a church. I can't do it. Brother Preston can't do it. We can't have some evangelists come in and bring revival with them. And uh, all of us working together can't do it. We can get programs. We can initiate some sort of a program to, you know, about getting the attendance up. I remember when all of that started in, in churches and boys every week and and finally, some of them begin to realize, you know, if you have some kind of an activity to get people at church one week, then you've got to have some sort of a bigger activity to get them there the next week. We lived in Springfield, Missouri, and that was the headquarters of the Baptist Bible Fellowship and the Assemblies of God and also the Pentecostals. All of their international headquarters were there in Springfield, Missouri, for some reason. That's really odd, but that's the way it was. And uh, one of the good things about it is if you love good quartet singing, every week you could hear, whether it's the Blackwood Brothers or the Stamps or the Happy Goodmans or whoever it was, some of those folks were going to be in town at one of those churches every week. And, and as much fun and enjoyment as that was, Sadly, that's all it really amounts to. I'm, look, I'm not against that, by the way. But I, I'm against the idea of us thinking that if we can just get the Blackwood Brothers Quartet here, and boy, we'll announce it and we'll get people from all over the community to come. Everybody wants to hear them sing. And so we get this big crowd. We're busting out at the seams. We're bringing in chairs to seat everybody. Boy, what a great time we've had. What a great night it is. 
But boy, when it's all over, unless you have something like that again next week or next month, you're going to be right back where you were because that's not going to bring revival. Uh, so all of our programs and so forth that have become so popular uh, is not going to bring revival. Revival comes from God, and the psalmist is sensible enough to recognize that, and that's why he says, oh, God. He, you know, he didn't look back at the past and say, boy, God has done great things. He didn't express his realization that things are not what they ought to be. And so he decides to call together an assembly of all of the heads of state, so to speak, and get them all together and say, look, fellas, we got to do something. we got to get it back the way that it used to be. Remember what God used to do? Remember how exciting that was? Well, we've, we've got to do something to get it back like it used to be. And so they could compile all of their notes and they could compare all of their plans together and what have you and make a united effort to, you know, to bring about a reformation that will get them back where they used to be. But if the Spirit of God isn't in it, it's all in vain. So what then is the path to revival? That We've been talking about the prelude to it, but... What is the path to revival? Now, I could stand here and mention a lot of things, especially if I had time to preach from Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14, which I've preached an entire week many times on that one verse in the subject of revival and just take each thing that's mentioned there each night and preach about that. So there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but whenever we think about the prescription for revival and, and keeping everything in the in context here, we can sum it all up in one word. Now, it involves humility, that's true. It involves repentance, that's true. But notice, without this one thing, there'll never be revival, and that's prayer. This whole psalm here is actually a prayer to God. The whole psalm is. It is a cry for revival. This is a, a picture of passion. And if you examine it, here's what you find. You find in this there is confession, there's intercession, there's supplication, there's thanksgiving, and there's praise. All of those five elements that make up prayer. So they, he covers every area of prayer. And so this is an open acknowledgement that they had turned away from God, that they needed God. And that's the only thing in the world that's going to move the hand of God, and that's heartfelt prayer on the part of God's people. It'd do you good to go home and just sit down and take this, this apart and look at all of the pieces of this psalm where he shows the confession and the intercession, the supplication, the thanksgiving, and the praise. And, you know, so many times we reduce prayer down to one thing, and that is just asking for something that's all we've got on our mind but prayer is about a whole lot more than that and so this in a word is the path to prayer just ask yourself and i'm not asking you to raise your hand i'm just asking you to be honest and i'm doing that because i i, I want us to be honest enough to examine our lives and and to think about how serious we are about the subject of revival. 
How often do you pray for a revival at Lakeway Baptist Church? How often do you really pray, oh, dear God, we just want to see you move in our midst. We want to see you remove all of the obstacles. We want to see you break down all of the barriers. We want to see you defeat the devil. We want a revival in the church. We want to, we want to see you in action doing great and wonderful things in every church ministry. How often do you really truly pray for revival? The path is the pathway of prayer. But notice the product of it back to our text. Notice he says that thy people may rejoice in thee. Now remember that revival must come through great sorrow over sin. There'll never be a revival unless there's sorrow over sin. And we've already covered that. He was indeed sorry about their sin and he was confessing their sins. But it produces great joy when it arrives. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote many years ago, about 1860 or something. He wrote these words. He said, joy in the Lord is the ripest fruit of grace. All revivals and renewals lead up to it. By our possession of it, we may estimate our spiritual condition. It is a sure gauge of inward prosperity. A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers or day dawn without light. And there are so many times people that talk about a, a church experiencing a revival because their attendance is up or their offering is up. Or they're in a building program and they're expanding and becoming well known in the community. Man, we've had a great revival. But how much joy is there? If there is no real heartfelt joy, mark it down, there's no evidence of revival. And uh, so many times, if we're honest, we have to confess that uh, we've lost the joy of our salvation. And Nehemiah said, that's our strength. That's our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When you lose your joy, you've lost the thing that protects you. You've lost the thing that enables you to resist temptation, to overcome sin, to endure trials. We dare not lose the joy. And joy, notice, is the product of revival. Now, I'm talking about joy that, as the Bible says, is unspeakable and full of glory. This is a joy that comes from being filled with the Spirit. I'm talking about a joy that motivates people to serve God. It's the kind of joy that keeps them going when the going gets tough, when others are against them, when the problems are piling up and there are difficulties every which way they turn, that joy will help them to keep going instead of giving up. Boy, if the, listen, if the devil can get you down, if he can get you in a state of depression, there's absolutely no telling where that might eventually lead. And it ought to be, you know, like a warning light, like the yellow caution light, that uh, something is amiss, something is wrong when our joy disappears. Now, the most important thing about this matter revival is the product 
or the purpose of revival. The product of it is joy, that thy people may rejoice. Now, maybe you think, well, you've already dealt with the purpose of it. You know, we look at those words that thy people may rejoice, and we say, well, that's the purpose of of revival, that we can rejoice. No, that's the product of it. You see, if we make that our purpose, then we fail because the reason is selfish. Lord, send us a revival so we can be happy. Send us a revival so we can rejoice. Now, that's the product of revival, but that can't ever be the purpose. And this is where we've gone awry so many times. We've made that the purpose of revival. Oh, if we could just get a revival, man, we would just be filled with joy and everything would be wonderful. But no, we've missed the mark altogether if that's all we care about. Notice, here's the key, and that's the last word. That thy people may rejoice, notice, in thee. So our purpose is not mere rejoicing, but it's rejoicing in the Lord. You see, the purpose of revival is that the Lord might be made known. That He might be glorified. And if our only concern is for, for, you know, personal pleasure, a larger congregation, more income, more excitement, or more fame, and what have you, we'll never have revival if we make that the purpose of revival. The purpose is that God will be glorified, regardless of what the attendance is. If the attendance is cut in half and the offering is all the way down as low as it's ever been, uh, Revival is more important than any of those things. Look at verse number 9 now as we head down the back stretch. Surely, surely His salvation is nigh them. Now remember the word salvation speaks about deliverance. You know, it can, it can have to do with spiritual deliverance. So we talk about being saved. There's a spiritual deliverance. It can have to do with the deliverance of a nation. It can have to do with the deliverance of captives, the deliverance of somebody from sin. But regardless of the nature of deliverance, he says, surely his salvation, his salvation is nigh to them that fear him. Now notice, that glory may dwell in our land. The whole point is that our desire for revival would be that so that God will be so pleased with His people that He'll pour out His blessings in abundance that glory may dwell in our land. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we had that kind of a revival, a national revival? Now look, by the way, we're not going to have that. In one sense, we've never had that. Because you can't revive something that's dead. Those that are unsaved don't need revival. They can't have revival. They need life. They need a resurrection. So we're not going to have a revival on a nationwide basis. You're not going to get all the Democrats and the Republicans to suddenly come together. But we can have a revival here in the midst of the nation. We've had those before. You go back and study and read about the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and what happened back then. Boy, I mean, the, some of the shops closed up. The, the Christian owners just closed up the shops and had prayer meetings and souls were being saved and lives were being changed. In other words, it was something that affected the entire nation 
at that time. And this is the idea back in Israel's day. Lord, will you revive us again? Notice that glory may dwell in our land. And that's what happens when we desire to glorify God more than anything else. Now, for Israel, God's plan for them was what? That they be a light unto the Gentiles. A lot of people misunderstand the way that God dealt with Israel. You know, the Bible talks about Israel being God's favored people and how He blessed them and so forth. Indeed, He did. But what they failed to lose sight of is that God had a reason for doing that. God didn't just say, I'm going to take the seed of Abraham, raise up a great and a mighty nation, because I like those people better than the others. I don't really have any time for all of those Gentile people, so I'm just going to focus on these these Jews and pour out my blessings upon them. I don't care anything about the other nations. That wasn't God's attitude at all. The reason God was so good to Israel is because He tells us that He set Israel as a light to the other nations. They were to be a light. They were to glorify the Lord to such an extent that others would see that the God of Israel is the only true and the living God. You see, it was that one factor that set Israel apart from every nation on the earth because everybody else believed that there were multiple gods, many gods, hundreds of gods, or ten gods, whatever it was. But they were the one thing they all had in common. Every nation, every religion... And that was that there is more than one God. And the Jews come along and they say, let us tell you about our God. Well, who is he? He is I am. The great I am. And say, not I was, not I'm going to be, but I am. He is the only God. That was the thing that made Israel so offensive to the other nations. That's why the people hated Israel. Because Israel said, there's only one true and the living God. And that offended all of the other nations. But He set them in the midst of those nations, allowed them even to suffer at the hands of those heathen people that they might be a light to bring them to a knowledge of Jehovah. That's why he pictures himself as a king. And he says to Israel, he says, I have set thee as a queen all decked out, all, you know, all in all of your glory. In other words, I'm showing you as my queen to the world, not that they might see greatness in you, but that in your attire and your behavior and your attitude in you, they'll see what a great king I am. That, that's it in a nutshell, folks. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, what in the world, though, does that have to do with us? Well, just everything. Because the same God that set them to be a light to the Gentiles, the same God has made us to be what? The light of the world. And Jesus said, let your light so shine Make sure you read that right. Don't just let it shine. Let your light so shine that others 
I'd see your good works. And what? Yeah, that's it. And glorify your Father in heaven. Not pat you on the back and say, wow, boy, brother, you've got your act together. You're some kind of wonderful. We're so glad you came by. You've just been a blessing and you've thrilled us so. No, no. That's not what it's about. It's so that others will see our good works. Now look, for that to happen... That means that we can't lock ourselves away like a monk in a monastery and live a life of seclusion. Sometimes we all feel like doing that, don't we? we you know, we get so tired with all of the battles of life and the struggles. We think, oh man, if I just had 10, 20 acres way out there in the woods somewhere and a big old high chain link fence around the place and a guard dog and I could just be alone and Nobody would bother me, yeah, and you wouldn't be worth a plug nickel. We're to, we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're to have an influence on those that we come in contact with. Notice, we don't do our works to be seen of men, but we do our works in such a way that others can see them. Notice that others may see your good works. That's what shining is all about. That they can see your good works and as a result of that, glorify your Father in heaven. Now, that being the case, that being the purpose, the only purpose for revival. There are products of revival, but that's the only purpose for revival. And that being the purpose, I ask you again, should the, we then not be praying that God would revive us? Now, it's real easy for us to pray, oh, Lord, you know, we as a church, we really need a revival. Brother Stone is right. I know what he said is right. I'm going to start praying that God will send a revival. Well, let me tell you the best way to do that. Like Gypsy Smith said many years ago, he said, if you want a revival, the best way to do it is to take a piece of chalk and draw a circle around yourself and then get down on your knees and ask God to send a revival in that circle. You see, because revival is not something that you're going to happen in mass. It happens one person at a time. Revive me. Revive my heart. That's where our prayer needs to start. Obviously, there is intercession involved and we need to pray for others. Indeed, we do. But if we just pray for others and we don't pray for revival in our own personal lives, we've missed the boat altogether. It's so, isn't it so easy for us to look out there at other people and, 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 and to see all of their faults? We can all do it. It's easy because we're all flawed. But what we really need to do is just look within our own heart and quit thinking so much about what's wrong with so-and-so and ask ourselves, what in the world is wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's changed? What has happened? Back when I got saved, I was so excited. I was so thrilled. I was so dedicated. I would just do anything for the Lord. The Sunday school superintendent would ask for a teacher, and I'd raise my hand. Awana would ask for a worker, and I'd raise my hand. I was ready. to. I just want to do whatever God wanted me to do. In some way, over the years, all of a sudden, it just becomes a, 
a, a chore for us to get involved. We start looking for ways to get uninvolved instead of really being involved in the Lord, and then we lose our joy and our peace and all of those things that contribute to the brightness of the light of our testimony. I mean, let's face it. You know, we talk about being a light unto others. If there's no joy, what kind of a light is that? Oh boy, you know, I love the Lord. I'm a dedicated Christian. You know, I, I hold an office, you know, there at the church or whatever it is. But boy, they look at you in the sad sack that you've become and all of a sudden your testimony is just down the drain. Because they need to see those things. And you say, well, what are they looking for? What do they need to see? The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the, those nine things that he mentions there in the book of Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit. And it starts with love and joy and peace. And goes right on down to the last one, which is temperance or self-control. And whenever they see that, then our testimony carries weight it has an effect on others i just want to challenge you tonight and i'm through right there i just want to leave you with the challenge that you will will join with me and with everybody else and let's pray for a revival a revival that starts with us personally and I, I, when I say that, I don't mean just come forward and pray. That's fine. Uh, that's wonderful. That's, that's great. But I'm talking about making it a matter of prayer every day. That sometime during the day that you'll get alone and you'll just pray, Oh, God, you know. You know better than we do how much we need revival. Lord, send a revival and let it start with me. Would you do that? I sure hope so. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for using your word, for using your spirit, sometimes by using your people, that you awaken us as to our need of revival. God, forgive us of our apathy, our complacency. Forgive us of the times that we just, well, we just get satisfied with things as they are, when in reality, things are not as they ought to be. So I pray you'll create within us a hunger, a desire, a longing for an old-fashioned, heaven-sent revival that will literally change our lives, a revival that will, will be so obvious to others that it'll cause them to glorify your holy name. For we ask it in Jesus' name and it's for his sake that we pray. Amen.